Part 12 of Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. The family of Marcus Cato, it is said, was of Tusculan origin though he lived, previous to his career as soldier and statesman, on an inherited estate in the country of the Sabines. His ancestors commonly passed for men, of no note whatever, but Cato himself extols his father, Marcus, as a brave man and good soldier. He also says that his grandfather Cato often won prizes for soldierly valor, and received from the state treasury, because of his bravery, the price of five horses which had been killed under him in battle. The Romans used to call men, who had no family distinction, but were coming into public notice, through their own achievements, new men, and such they called Cato. But he himself used to say that, as far as office and distinction went, he was indeed new, but having regard to ancestral deeds of valor, he was the oldest of the old. His third name was not Cato at first, but Priscus. Afterwards he got the surname of Cato for his great abilities. The Romans call a man who is wise and prudent Catus. As for his outward appearance, he had reddish hair and keen gray eyes, as the author of a well-known epigram ill-naturedly gives us to understand. Red-haired, snapper and biter, his gray eyes flashing defiance. Porcius, come to the shades, back will be thrust by their queen. His bodily habit, since he was addicted from the very first to labor with his own hands, a temperate mode of life and military duties, was very serviceable and disposed alike to vigor and health. His discourse, a second body as it were, and, for the use of a man, who would live neither obscurely nor idly, an instrument with which to perform not only necessary, but also high and noble services. This he developed and perfected in the villages and towns about Rome, where he served as an advocate for all who needed him, and got the reputation of being first a zealous pleader, and then a capable orator. Thenceforth the weight and dignity of his character revealed themselves more and more to those who had dealings with him. They saw that he was bound to be a man of great affairs, and have a leading place in the state. For he not only gave his services in legal contests, without fee of any sort, as it would seem, but did not appear to cherish even the repute won in such contests as his chief ambition. Nay, he was far more desirous of high repute in battles and campaigns against the enemy, and while he was yet a mere stripling, had his breast covered with honorable wounds. He says himself that he made his first campaign when he was seventeen years old, at the time when Hannibal was consuming Italy with the flames of his successes. In battle he showed himself effective of hand, sure and steadfast of foot, and of a fierce countenance. With threatening speech and harsh cries he would advance upon the foe, for he rightly thought, and tried to show others, that oftentimes such action terrifies the enemy more than the sword. On the march he carried his own armor on foot, while a single attendant followed in charge of his camp utensils. With this man, it is said, he was never wroth, and never scolded him when he served up a meal. Nay, he actually took hold himself and assisted in most of such preparations, provided he was free from his military duties. 
Water was what he drank on his campaigns, except that once in a while, in a raging thirst, he would call for vinegar, or, when his strength was failing, would add a little wine. Near his fields was the cottage, which had once belonged to Manius Curius, a hero of three triumphs. To this he would often go, and the sight of the small farm and the mean dwelling led him to think of their former owner, who, though he had become the greatest of the Romans, had subdued the most warlike nations, and driven Pyrrhus out of Italy, nevertheless tilled this little patch of ground with his own hands, and occupied this cottage after three triumphs. Here it was that the ambassadors of the Samnites once found him seated at his hearth, cooking turnips, and offered him much gold, but he dismissed them, saying that a man whom such a meal satisfied had no need of gold, and for his part he thought that a more honorable thing than the possession of gold was the conquest of its possessors. Cato would go away with his mind full of these things, and on viewing again his own house and lands and servants and mode of life, would increase the labors of his hands and lop off his extravagancies. When Fabius Maximus took the city of Tarentum, it chanced that Cato, who was then a mere stripling, served under him, and being lodged with a certain Nearchus, of the sect of the Pythagoreans, he was eager to know of his doctrines. When he heard this man holding forth as follows, in language which Plato also uses, condemning pleasure as the greatest incentive to evil, and the body as the chief detriment to the soul, from which she can release and purify herself only by such reasonings as most do wean and divorce her from bodily sensations. He fell still more in love with simplicity and restraint. Further than this, it is said, he did not learn Greek till late in life, and was quite well on in years when he took to reading Greek books. Then he profited in oratory somewhat from Thucydides, but more from Demosthenes. However, his writings are moderately embellished with Greek sentiments and stories, and many literal translations from the Greek have found a place among his maxims and proverbs. There was at Rome a certain man of the highest birth and greatest influence, who had the power to discern excellence in the bud, and the grace to cultivate it, and bring it into general esteem. This man was Valerius Flaccus. He had a farm next to that of Cato, and learning from Cato's servants of their master's laborious and frugal way of living. He was amazed to hear them tell how Cato, early in the morning, went on foot to the marketplace, and pleaded the cases of all who wished his aid, then came back to his farm, where, clad in a working blouse if it was winter, and stripped to the waist if it was summer, he wrought with his servants, then sat down with them to eat of the same bread and drink of the same wine. They told Valerius many other instances of Cato's fairness and moderation, quoting also sundry pithy sayings of his, until at last Valerius gave command that Cato be invited to dine with him. After this, discovering by converse with him that his nature was gentle and polite, and needed, like a growing tree, only cultivation and room to expand, Valerius urged, and at last persuaded him, to engage in public life at Rome. Accordingly, taking up his abode in the city, his own efforts as an advocate at once won him admiring friends, and the favor of Valerius brought him great honor and influence so that he was made military tribune first, and then quaestor. After this, 
being now launched on an eminent and brilliant career, he shared the highest honors with Valerius, becoming consul with him, and afterwards censor. Of the elder statesmen, he attached himself most closely to Fabius Maximus, who was of the highest reputation, and had the greatest influence. But this was more by way of setting before himself the character and life of the man as the fairest examples he could follow. In the same spirit, he did not hesitate to oppose the great Scipio, a youthful rival of Fabius, and thought to be envious of him. When he was sent out with Scipio as quaestor for the war in Africa, he saw that the man indulged in his wanted extravagance, and lavished money without stint upon his soldiery. He therefore made bold to tell him that the matter of expense was not the greatest evil to be complained of, but the fact that he was corrupting the native simplicity of his soldiers, who resorted to wanton pleasures when their pay exceeded their actual needs. Scipio replied that he had no use for a parsimonious quaestor, when the winds were bearing him under full sail to the war. He owed the city an account of his achievements, not of its monies. Cato, therefore, left Sicily, and joined Fabius in denouncing before the Senate Scipio's waste of enormous monies, and his boyish addiction to palaestras and theaters, as though he were not commander of an army, but master of a festival. As a result of these attacks, tribunes were sent to bring Scipio back to Rome, if the charges against him turned out to be true. Well then, Scipio convinced the tribunes that the victory in war depended on the preparations made for it, showed that he could be agreeable in his intercourse with his friends when he had the leisure for it, but was never led by his sociability to neglect matters of large and serious import, and sailed off for his war in Africa. The influence which Cato's oratory won for him waxed great, and men called him a Roman Demosthenes but his manner of life was even more talked about and noised abroad, for his oratorical ability only set before young men a goal which many already were striving eagerly to attain. But a man who wrought with his own hands, as his fathers did, and was contented with a cold breakfast, a frugal dinner, simple raiment, and a humble dwelling, one who thought more of not wanting the superfluities of life than of possessing them, such a man was rare. The commonwealth had now grown too large to keep its primitive integrity. The sway over many realms and peoples had brought a large admixture of customs, and the adoption of examples set in modes of life of every sort. It was natural, therefore, that men should admire Cato, when they saw that, whereas other men were broken down by toils and enervated by pleasures, he was victor over both, and this too, not only while he was still young and ambitious, but even in his hoary age, after consulship and triumph. Then, like some victorious athlete, he persisted in the regiment of his training, and kept his mind unaltered to the last. He tells us that he never wore clothing worth more than a hundred drachmas, that he drank, even when he was praetor or consul, the same wine as his slaves, that, as for fish or meats, he would buy thirty asses worth for his dinner from the public stalls, and even this for the city's sake, that he might not live on bread alone, but strengthen his body for military service, that he once fell heir to an embroidered Babylonian robe, but sold it at once, that not a single one of his cottages had plastered walls, that he had never paid more than fifteen hundred drachmas for a slave, since he did not want them to be delicately beautiful, but sturdy workers, 
such as grooms and herdsmen, and these he thought it his duty to sell when they got oldish, instead of feeding them when they were useless, and that in general he thought nothing cheap that one could do without, but that what one did not need, even if it cost but a penny, was dear. Also that he bought lands where crops were raised and cattle herded, not those where lawns were sprinkled and paths swept. These things were ascribed by some to the man's parsimony, but others condoned them in the belief that he lived in this contracted way only to correct and moderate the extravagance of others. However, for my part, I regard his treatment of his slaves like beasts of burden, using them to the uttermost, and then, when they are old, driving them off and selling them, as the mark of a very mean nature, which recognizes no tie between man and man, but that of necessity. And yet we know that kindness has a wider scope than justice. Law and justice we naturally apply to men alone, but when it comes to beneficence and charity, these often flow in streams from the gentle heart, like water from a copious stream, even down to dumb beasts. A kindly man will take good care of his horses, even when they are worn out with age, and of his dogs, too, not only in their puppyhood, but when their old age needs nursing. While the Athenians were building the Parthenon, they turned loose for free and unrestricted pasturage such mules as were seen to be the most persistently laborious. One of these, they say, came back to the works of its own accord, and trotted along by the side of its fellows under the yoke, which were dragging the wagons up to the Acropolis, and even led the way for them, as though exhorting and exciting them on. The Athenians passed a decree that the animal be maintained at the public cost as long as it lived. Then there were the mares of Simon, with which he won three victories at Olympia. Their graves are near the tombs of his family. Dogs also that have been close and constant companions of men often have been buried with honor. Xanthippus, of olden time, gave the dog which swam along by the side of his trireme to Salamis, when the people were abandoning their city, honorable burial on the promontory, which is called to this day Sinocesma, or Dog's Mound. We should not treat living creatures like shoes or pots or pans, casting them aside when they are bruised and worn out with service. But, if for no other reason, for the sake of practice and kindness to our fellow men, we should accustom ourselves to mildness and gentleness in our dealings with other creatures. I certainly would not sell even an oxen that had worked for me, just because he was old, much less an elderly man, removing him from his habitual place in customary life, as it were, from his native land, for a paltry price, useless as he is to those who sell him, as he will be to those who buy him. But Cato, exulting, as it were, in such things, said that he left in Spain even the horse which had carried him through his consular campaign, that he might not tax the city with the cost of its transportation. Whether now these things should be set down in greatness of spirit or littleness of mind is an open question. But in other manners, his self-restraint was beyond measure admirable. For instance, when he was in command of an army, he took for himself and his retinue not more than three attic bushels of wheat a month, and for his beasts of burden, less than a bushel and a half of barley a day. He received Sardinia as a province, and whereas his predecessors were wont to charge the public treasury with their pavilions, couches, and apparel, 
while they oppressed the province with the cost of their large retinues of servants and friends, and of their lavish and elaborate banquets. His simple economy stood out in an incredible contrast. He made no demands whatever upon the public treasury, and made his circuit of the cities on foot, followed by a single public officer who carried his robe and chalice for sacrifices. And yet, though in such matters he showed himself mild and sparing to those under his authority, in other ways he displayed a dignity and severity which fully corresponded, for in the administration of justice he was inexorable, and in carrying out the edicts of the government was direct and masterful, so that the Roman power never inspired its subjects with greater fear or affection. Much of the same traits are revealed in the man's oratory. It was at once graceful and powerful, pleasant and compelling, facetious and severe, sententious and belligerent. So Plato says of Socrates that, from the outside, he impressed his associates as rude, uncouth, and wanton, but within he was full of earnestness and of matters that moved his hearers to tears and wrung their hearts. Wherefore, I know not what they can mean who say that Cato's oratory most resembled that of Lysias. However, such questions must be decided by those who are more capable than I am of discerning the traits of a Roman oratory, and I shall now record a few of his famous sayings, believing that men's characters are revealed much more by their speech than, as some think, by their looks. He once wished to dissuade the Roman people from insisting unseasonably upon a distribution of corn, and began his speech with these words, It is a hard matter my fellow citizens, to argue with the belly, since it has no ears. Again, inveighing against the prevalent extravagance, he said, It is a hard matter to save a city in which a fish sells for more than an ox. Again, he said that Romans were like sheep, for as these are not to be persuaded one by one, but all in a body, blindly following their leader. So ye, he said, though as individuals ye would not deign to follow the counsels of certain men, when ye are got together, ye suffer yourselves to be led by them. Discoursing on the power of women, he said, All other men rule their wives. We rule all other men, and our wives rule us. This, however, is a translation from the sayings of Themistocles. He, finding himself much under his son's orders, through the lad's mother, said, Wife, the Athenians rule the Hellenes, I rule the Athenians, thou rulest me, and thy son thee. Therefore, let him make sparing use of that authority, which makes him, child though he is, the most powerful of the Hellenes. The Roman people, Cato said, fixed the market value, not only of dyes, but also of behavior. For, said he, as dyers most affect that dye which they see pleases you, so your young men learn and practice that which wins your praise. And he exhorted them, in case it was through virtue and temperance that they became great, to make no changes for the worse, but if it was through intemperance and vice, to change for the better. These had already made them great enough. Of those who were eager to hold high office frequently, he said that like men who did not know the road, they sought to be attended on their way by lictors, lest they go astray he censored his fellow citizens for choosing the same men over and over again to high office. You will be thought, said he, not to deem your offices worth much, 
or else not to deem many men worthy of your offices. Of one of his enemies, who had the name of leading a disgraceful and disreputable life, he said, This man's mother holds the wish that he may survive her to be no pious prayer, but a malignant curse. Pointing to a man who had sold his ancestral fields lying near the sea, he pretended to admire him as stronger than the sea. This man, said he, has drunk down with ease what the sea found it hard to push away. When King Eumenes paid a visit to Rome, the Senate received him with extravagant honors, and the chief men of the city strove who should be the most about him. But Cato clearly looked upon him with suspicion and alarm. Surely, someone said to him, he is an excellent man, and a friend of Rome. Granted, said Cato, but the animal known as king is by nature carnivorous. He said further, that not one of the kings whom men so lauded was worthy of comparison with Epaminondas, or Pericles, or Themistocles, or Manius Curius, or with Hamilcar, surnamed Barcus. His enemies hated him, he used to say, because he rose every day before it was light, and neglecting his own private matters, devoted his time to the public interests. He also used to say that he preferred to do right and get no thanks, rather than to do ill and get no punishment, and that he had pardon for everybody's mistakes except his own. The Romans once chose three ambassadors to Bithynia, of whom one was gouty, another had had his head trepanned, and the third was deemed a fool. Cato made merry over this, and said that the Romans were sending out an embassy which had neither feet, nor head, nor heart. His aid was once solicited by Scipio, at the insistence of Polybius, in behalf of the exiles from Achaia, and after a long debate upon the question in the Senate, where some favored and some opposed their return home, Cato rose and said, Here we sit all day, as if we have naught else to do, debating whether some poor old Greeks should be buried here or in Ikea. The Senate voted that the men be allowed to return, and a few days afterwards, Polybius tried to get admission to that body again, with a proposal that the exiles be restored to their former honors in Ikea, and asked Cato's opinion on the matter. Cato smiled and said that Polybius, as if he were another Odysseus, wanted to go back into the cave of the Cyclops for a cap and belt which he had left there. Wise men, he said, profited more from fools than fools from wise men, and the wise shun the mistakes of fools, but fools do not imitate the successes of the wise. He said he liked to see blushes on a young man's face rather than pallor, and that he had no use for a soldier who plied his hands on the march and his feet in battle, and whose snore was louder than his war cry. Railing at the fat knight, he said, Where can such a body be of service to the state, when everything between its gullet and its groins is devoted to belly? A certain epicure wished to enjoy his society, but he excused himself, saying that he could not live with a man whose palate was more sensitive than his heart. As for the lover, he said his soul dwelt in the body of another. As for repentance, he said he had indulged in it himself, but thrice in his whole life, once when he entrusted a secret to his wife, once when he paid the ship's fare to a place instead of walking thither, and once when he remained intested the whole day. To an old man, who was steeped in iniquity, he said, Man, old age disgraces enough of its own. Do not add to them the shame of vice."
to a tribune of the people who had been accused of using poison and who was trying to force the passage of a useless bill he said young man i know not which is worse to drink your mixtures or to enact your bills and when he was reviled by a man who led a life of shameless debauchery he said i fight an unequal battle with you you listen to abuse calmly and utter it glibly while for me it is unpleasant to utter it and unusual to hear it such then is the nature of his famous sayings end of cato major part one